Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Are you tired of hearing about disruption? Is it time for you to disrupt the disruptors? Find out how to do it at Furniture Today's next conference, September 25th through 27th at Live by Lowe's in Arlington, Texas. My guest this week is Farooq Kathwari, Chairman CEO of Ethan Allen. Um, welcome, Mr. Kathwari. Thank you for taking the time today. It's my pleasure and good to be with you. Thank you for sharing a copy of your new book, Trailblazer. I, I'd like to ask, what caused you to write the book at this time? You've had a long, distinguished career. Um, certainly, you uh, are capable of writing a book at any time in that period. What What's happening now that makes this a particularly appropriate time for this book? Well, I have been, I have been thinking of this because many, many people have been encouraging me for the last 10, 10 12 years. And, uh, you know, I'm a storyteller. And I tell stories to my kids and now to my grandkids. And so uh, finally, about two years back, I decided to sit down and start writing the stories. And I thought the best would be to do it in a chronological manner from the time from my uh, being young and just being a student and in Kashmir and coming to America and then uh, onwards. So it really is, this, is, so you might say, it's a memoir which covers a lot of different subjects. One of the subjects that it covers in great detail is something that's obviously very close to your heart, which is um, the situation in, in Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, given the most recent events there and uh, the actions by the Indian government, um, how are you feeling with regard to that situation? Well, it's coincidentally, I was there last month, just a week before the, the action taken by the Indian authorities. And one of the, one of the serious uh, actions they took was to really take about 6 million people of the Kashmiri-speaking region, where, you know, of course, I come from, and put a clamp down in terms of the telephone, in terms of the internet, in terms of the television, uh, TV, a very, very unusual step, and it really created a very major issue for the people of Kashmir and still is. You know, I worked a lot during the last, uh, uh, you know, all my life, but certainly uh, 10 years before, I spent 15 years at the invitation of the governments of India and Pakistan and also the many, many different segments of the Kashmir uh, population to get involved. I started to, and the objective was to look for peace. And in fact, today there needs to be peace. And especially for the people of India and Pakistan, they need peace. And for Kashmir, it's critical to have peace. And it's got to be sensible. It's got to be something that that is workable. And I was able to, together with about 25 leading scholars and diplomats in 1996, establish what's called the Kashmir Study Group and spend the next 12, 15 years working on the, the, the subject, was invited by the heads of the governments of India and Pakistan to, to be the interlocutor, and through involvement with all the parties came with some sensible options, which are still there, which, would, which are under the basis of three words that I used many, many times, it's, which is uh, that a solution for this problem should be peaceful because war and killing is not good for anybody. Uh, second, it should be perceived as honorable. And third, it should be feasible. Three very, very important uh, topics. And this is not only for the Kashmir region, but there are many other problems of the world where this could be applied to. So under that umbrella of finding a peaceful, honorable, and a feasible uh, the solution led us to come with ideas, and they basically, in principle, had agreed to it. And I hope the parties sit down and that they have sense and are able to to implement some of those ideas. Is the Kashmir Study Group still active, and are you still involved with that group? 
Well, it has not been very active in the last um, 10, 12 years. And now, of course, with the current situation that uh, some of the members are discussing it, meeting, and we'll see how we can get involved. And, of course, we got involved in a constructive manner. So we are looking at it right now. What what do you think are the, the primary obstacles? Why, why does this situation seem to be so intractable? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and a number of them is the fact of the people, the peoples, and I'm talking the Indians and the Pakistan, and even, even some of the leaders of the Kashmir region, not fully comprehending the history of the region. It's amazing. You would think that the leaders, especially the Kashmir region, com- would completely understand the history. See, the Kashmir, it's called Jammu and Kashmir, as you mentioned, was uh, put together through, you know, uh, through what you might call involvement with, uh, with, uh, with the colonial powers. The, for 300 years, this was put together, and Kashmir is one of the regions. It's not much dissimilar to what Yugoslavia was. And uh, the main, one of the main areas of conflict is the Kashmiri-speaking area. This was an area that had been independent for about a thousand years intermittently and lost its independent. You know, Kashmiris say it was like yesterday. They lost it in 1586. And then through the involvement of history, other areas were joined to create this entity called Jammu and Kashmir. And the focus has to be that, like it was done in Yugoslavia, which unfortunately was done with a lot of war and bloodshed, that's not the way to do it. But each of these regions should be given an opportunity to govern itself. And but but today, you know, we have a lot of political issues, religious issues uh, that are uh, taking taking uh, taking this issue into a conflict between India and Pakistan and and um, and unfortunately the world has so many conflicts that uh, not fully comprehend that what needs to be done and but there is an opportunity of and I hope sense prevails that to find this peaceful honorable and a feasible solution and this is no different than many other problems of the world are faced faced with in similar situations. Well, it's it's interesting. I, I noted in the book that you draw parallels in terms of the um, types of processes and types of um, philosophies that needed to be applied to that situation and how they were similar to the philosophies uh, and processes that you looked to implement at Ethan Allen in terms of your business philosophies and, and the priorities. That's right. I think that the principles are similar, which are that uh, you have to, and in fact, as you know, I was able to about almost uh, 25, 30 years back uh, establish uh, what I call 10 leadership principles, which have guided us. And these leadership principles, the most important one is the role of leaders, that the leaders have to have to work hard. The leaders have to uh, make sure that they understand the relative importance of priorities, that they've got to treat people with dignity, that uh, prioritization is critical, not every issue is important, that it's uh, the leader's responsibility is to be accessible. Uh, Change, one has to embrace change. And then finally, the leadership principle is justice, treating people fairly. And I have been able to utilize these in over 30 years of my involvement with Ethan Allen, and it's worked well. And we have motivated people. We are, as you know, uh, still a vertically integrated company. with many 75% of our manufacturing in North America uh, done under our control. We have uh, 300 retail uh, stores, our design centers, 200 of them in North America, about over 60% of them we operate ourselves. We have one of the best logistics network in the country. It requires leaders in all these areas. We are not a business that just makes products and figures out who's going to sell them. 
who's going to deliver them. We are involved with all these areas, which means you've got to create a great team. And that's what has been my focus all along my life, to, to create a great team. It's unfortunate that your principle of speed seems to never apply when it comes to politics. No, it's really there. You need to have patience, as I said in my book, that also, you know, when people of Kashmir have been fighting for their right to govern themselves since 1586, um, you need to have lots of patience. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd like to to talk about your your experience um, at Ethan Allen uh, and and how you applied those principles. Um, But I, I would love it if you could go back and recount for people because I really you, you mentioned you're a storyteller and I, I really enjoyed two particular stories one was actually um, how you got your start uh, not just at Ethan Allen um, but as a merchant um, selling Marvin Traub at Bloomingdale's that is right you know when I came at age 20 to New York I had of course not worked other than in sports, I was a captain of a cricket team, always in, sport, in, in school and in college, which meant I was always captaining a team. So I, that was my, my background. So I come to New York. I got admission at NYU, New York University's business school. First, I didn't know what to study. The advisor said, well, how about accounting? I went in, it was debits and credits. I said, no, that economics, and it was a sort of a, uh, all, also all graphs and cha- charts. I said, no. Then he said, what marketing? And I had never heard the terminology. And he said, marketing is basically convincing people, selling ideas. I said, well, that I can do. So that's how I got into marketing, but I needed a job. And I saw an ad downtown Manhattan. It said, bookkeeper needed. Well, I'd never seen any books. I'd never seen a calculator. My class fellows said, don't apply, but I did. And somehow convinced them to give me a job, and I learned. And from there, my next was working uh, on Wall Street. But before I did that, uh, my grandfather and father in Kashmir decided to send me 12 wicker baskets of arts and crafts. And that, of course, had a great influence on my whole life. That is, they sent it, they sent and said, sell them, send us the cost and help you in your school. Well, I didn't know what to do, I, but then I, re- then I, Remember that Marvin Traub, the CEO of Bloomingdale's, had given us a lecture at, at our class. So I called his office uh, 10, 12 days every day. Finally, they said, come on in, he'll see you. I took six or, six or seven items. He brought in a merchant, and they liked it. They said, we like it, and they placed an order. So I said, great, if Bloomingdale's, why not Lord & Taylor's? Why not others? So I started building a business. While I was still working on bookkeeping and going to school at night, and it was the owners of this bookkeeping company that realized, not me, they said, you know, why don't you go and work on Wall Street? And why your business school used to be near Wall Street. I said, what will I do there? They said, tell them you're a finan- you want a job as a financial analyst. Anyway, I went to the first building on Wall Street, walked up, and the 16th floor, I got a job with Bear Stearns as a junior financial analyst. And keep in mind, I was still studying marketing. And when I learned a lot in about eight or nine months, Later, a new firm was being established by the Rothschilds, uh, an investment firm, and they needed somebody to help the portfolio manager. My name must have come up. So I got a job there and started working. And meanwhile, I'm still selling accessories to a to number of com- uh, uh, um, clients. And it was at the Rothschild company that one of my associates told me one day, he said, you know, I know the founder of Ethan Allen, Nat and Sal. Would you like to meet him? Ethan Allen used to be in Manhattan. Of course, I knew nothing about the company. I went to see him, and um, he brought in one of his merchants, said, this young man is from Kashmir. Do we get anything from there? He said, yes, we get this cruel fabric. This embroidered fabric never comes on time, always a problem. He looked at me and said, you can help? I said, absolutely. I had no idea. But anyway, <laughs> I went on looking of how to get about doing it with my family, and I became... Um, a supplier to Ethan Allen, and again, uh, then I said, if Ethan Allen, why not others? So I, in fact, ended up selling it to companies like Schumacher and Duralee, and then I got a fellow in North Carolina, his name was Julian Cabot. He was a representative, a fabric representative, very, very good person. He then worked with me, 
and started selling the fabrics. And I used to go twice a year to to the High Point general area, and we sold it to Bernard, to Century, to Drexel, to Hendredon, to and I would take a few days off from my work and my school and develop a good business. And it was that process a year later or two years later, and a year later, Nat and Sal called me again. Said, you know, we're having a trouble getting rugs from Romania and India. You think you can help? I said, absolutely. I had no idea. I didn't even know where Romania was. But anyway, I took time off, went to India, and again made contact and became a supplier of rugs to India. I went to Ethan Allen and then to others as well and dealt a business. By this time, I now was working with the Rothschilds. I finished my MBA at New York University in marketing. And uh, two or three years later, I was made a chief financial officer of the Rothschild company at a fairly young age. It, it, it was. It seems like there are a number of times in your career, and this theme repeats itself throughout the book, where you your positive attitude. Someone says, "Can you do this?" And as you say, absolutely, without any experience or any prior knowledge. Um, where does that positive that that confidence come from? I think it's a sort of um, it is an intuitive characteristic that uh, I look at a problem and say, yes, I'm going to handle it. And somehow it's, it's natural. Uh, there's no real rational reason because some of these things rationally you should say, don't do it. I shouldn't have taken a bookkeeping job. I shouldn't have taken on the job of uh, selling uh, fabrics to Ethan Allen. And um, uh, But, you know, sort of it's a natural instinct to say, okay, but then you've got to do it. You just can't say, yes, I will, but then you really have to make it work. And that's what really I was doing, and it worked. And then uh, Nat and Sal um, asked me to join Ethan Allen. At that time, Ethan Allen was a major manufacturer of furniture, selling those products to Ethan Allen dealers. And the dealers, to a great degree, purchased accessories and everything else from going to high point markets and other markets. So I said, why should they go to High Point and other markets? Why not have them buy from you? And he, he, looked, he listened to me. He said, well, what do you suggest? I said, I'll give up my job if you agree to have a partnership with me, and I will own 60%, Ethan Allen will own 40%. You have to finance it, most of it, and I will set up an operation in building products from all over the world. And that's how it started. And... Um, the first thing is, at that time, Italy was the main source of beautiful accessories. China did not exist as a source. So I set up an office in Florence, Italy. I traveled to many, many countries, from Portugal to Spain to Germany to, to uh, of course, India. Then also was one of the first ones to go to China and establish a business relationship with China. So that business did well. And Ethan Allen was a public company in the 60s. And by early 80s, the company was acquired by a company called Interco, which decided to become a major force in furniture, one of those conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And they purchased Ethan Allen, they purchased Broyhill, they purchased Lane, and became the, one of the largest suppliers. At the same time, Masco also decided to be a conglomerate, and they purchased companies like Thomasville and Andrejohn and Drexel. However, it was around that time when Ethan Allen became part of Interco, Nat and Sal was asking me to join Ethan Allen. And I really didn't want to go, so finally I said, I'll say something to him that he will say, forget it. I said, Nat, I do not know what I'm going to do here at Ethan Allen. Ethan Allen had moved to Danbury, Connecticut from New York in the 70s. And he said, well, what would you like to do? And uh, I said, well, I don't want to come here, but if I do come, I'll have to take your job. He looked at me a little surprised, but, you know, then I did take his job. He agreed. It took a little while, though, did it not? I mean, you, uh, it did. you worked it took, there for you know, a while? Said, yes. And... No, I mean, yes, it was when I came in, he said yes, but then he said I can't completely promise, but if you have the abilities, you will have my job. Well, it took uh, five years for me to become president and then CEO of the company. But he was great. He was a great leader, great teacher, 
but and not and of course not easy because he was an entrepreneur who had built a business. As I recall from the book, um, when you became CEO or, or maybe perhaps it was president, you had. And, and this is another recurring theme. You seem to have some conditions in terms of the reporting structure and how you thought that should work. I did because I realized that you know, Adam Sal was an entrepreneur. He had lots of folks reporting to him. And so I realized that it would be difficult if I didn't have full authority. And I said, I will join and become president, but everybody has to report to me. Well, first he said, how is that possible? I said, well, I will not join unless everybody reports to me and I'll report to you. And certainly you can be involved in all the major decision-making, participate, but people will know who they report to. And then he agreed. And so when I became president, everybody was reporting to me. And I then, of course, had to take a lot of initiatives in uh, changing to some degree the culture because Ethan Allen was a manufacturing culture all his retail was run by independent retailers. And those days, uh, the culture was in manufacturing in most part of the country that it's my way or the highway. Or if it ain't broken, don't fix it. I said, nope. So I went to, I had town hall meetings. I went to most of our manufacturing. I invited uh, 5,000 of our factory workers, three, 400 at a time to our headquarters in Danbury, Connecticut. And my message was, like my cricket team experience was that we wanted to create teams. But the, the job of a captain of a cricket team is to make sure that the team is motivated, is to make sure they help the team become better. So I went around and getting the message across that if it, this is not my way or the highway, that the main job of a leader is to help their people become better. That's the main job, whether it's an enterprise, whether it's a country or wherever. And it worked. Many people, obviously, who were at the verge of retiring and had a different culture, they didn't stay. But we promoted a lot of people and created an entrepreneurial culture where people take a lot of pride. And look at today, we operate 75% uh, of all our, all our products are made in our own workshops in North America. Not easy. When everybody left the United States, we said, no, we're going to make it ourselves. Uh, we run, uh, in the United States, 60% of our retail. These were, at one time, it was 100% by our families. And as they retired, as they retired, we took them over. And one at a time, I had to work with every one of them and sit with them. And the 30% that we have are still fantastic and great. But, from, but we have one program. We all work together. And that required in creating a team. So, you know, the, so... Basically, when you have a team, you have to continue to keep on playing. If you're a captain of the team, your job is either you're practicing or you're playing. You can't be sitting on the side. Hmm. You, you mentioned in the book that within three years after you took over, um, roughly 70% of the management turned over. Um, that's a challenge for any company to manage change and at that scale. How, do, how did you manage that? without disrupting the company and its performance? Well, you know, my philosophy is that of, uh, you know, the, to a great degree in the military. If somebody is, a leader is left, you, you take, go to the ranks and take a person you believe is the best and promote him. So I went around along with others with the help that as people were leaving, and most of them were retiring, not that they were going for other jobs, they really had a little tough time, some of them, to accept the new culture. But we had, uh, you, you, need to, you need to have a culture whereby you look at people and look in their eyes and say, you take charge. I've done that all my life. And, you know, 80% of the time, most people make it and they do a good job. Come to Furniture Today's next conference, September 25th through 27th at Live by Lowe's, where we will be honoring retail icons Jake Jabs from American Furniture Warehouse, Swans Furniture, Stacy Furniture, and Knight Furniture. All retail, all the time, only at Next. 
you, you also seem to place a strong uh, emphasis on accountability. I, I recall reading a story where you were talking to some, I think it was the, the dealers on the West Coast, um, where they asked what you were going to do for them. And you told them how you would support them with product and the right merchandise and the right programs. But you also turned it around and said, but I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do for us? Absolutely. You know, Bill, that was sort of a shock when I, when I first went to our dealers. Our dealers are very strong. They had dealer organizations, West Coast dealers, uh, Southwest, Midwest, uh, Mid-Atlantic. That, that also gave a great opportunity for me to know them, to be with them, and to have them become partners. And they did. They really helped me a lot. But I had to put in certain, you know, to make changes, you have to be willing to also sometimes lose. For instance, uh, when I became president at that time, uh, we had our manufacturing mostly on the East Coast, from Maine to the Carolinas. And we would ship our products, like most furniture companies today do, from their plants, and the dealers paid a freight, which means we had all different suggested pricing, which also meant everybody had a different marketing. I said, no, if you have one team, we got to have a similar marketing across the country, same messages, and that we should treat our people, our customers, fairly. So we said we're going to do something which had not been done before, which is we took over the logistics of delivering products at one cost nationally. And that was in the 80s. And today we have one of the, one of the I would say, the best or the better logistics network, which d- delivers products to the consumers at one landed cost nationally. And that we started in the 80s. That gave us an opportunity also to unify the system. Now, keep in mind, our business was being done by Ethan Allen dealers. We were not selling our products to department stores or others, which, which if, if it was done, like most furniture companies, as you know, they may have some dedicated stores, but they also sell to many other people. You cannot then have a co- coordinated marketing. You cannot speak with one voice. So because they were, they were all basically independent retailers. The first job was then to, uh, to accept the fact they'll only sell Ethanolan products. That took some doing. Second thing was that we'll have one marketing program, that we will deliver our products at one cost. Well, you know, some dealers didn't like it. In fact, uh, there were 30, 13 dealers in the, all in the East Coast, bigger dealers. They created a group, and they called me to a meeting in the Pittsburgh airport. It's in my book. and. Uh, one of our dealers, Dan Brown, he was in Long Island. He had been, a, uh, he had worked in the, in the army intelligence and interrogating prisoners of war. So when I walked in, they had a table with 13 of them sitting on one side and I was on the other. I said, court martial. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we had a discussions and finally we came, I came to, I said, you know, we have this, we know that's hard for you to accept that what we are talking about, but long-term, that is tremendously important, and I'm not going to change my position. Two of our dealers left us, but everybody else stayed, and they did well. So we created a unified system, and were able to speak with one voice, and that, we, and that is still our advantage. There's an interesting quote in the section of the book that you're referencing here, and, and I, I thought it was almost metaphorical for other things. I was wondering if Um, if you intended it as a a larger metaphor. I'll just read it to you. It says, it's human nature to feel that a benefit you've experienced through good fortune is something you deserve. This is the way of the world. Those who have the most usually come to believe they somehow earned it completely on their own. The truth is, that's not the case. Absolutely. And, you know, when people have those advantages, they believe that uh, they, they should not give it up. And not easy, but I always, I've, I've always believed that we have got to deal people, we got to deal fairly with everybody, with our clients, with our retailers, with our folks. And the other principle is, uh, one of my ten leadership principles is the concept of justice. And the main importance of justice is that for important things you should be willing to lose. Now, a lot of people don't want to lose anything, and if you don't want to lose, you know, you cannot then continue to make major changes. Now, one has to be realistic. One has to make sure that you don't do foolish things. 
and uh, and over the years, you know, I have taken steps where we, if I did not feel it was the right thing to do, we didn't do them, even at the expense of having less business. But overall, it has worked very well. I'd like to, to talk about, you, you. we talked a little bit about Nat Ansel and, and what you learned there. Um, I'd like to talk about the, the succession. Ultimately, when he stepped down, and you reference this in the book, um, it, there was a kind of a disagreement with Interco, and, and he decided to, to step down rather than to have them make the decision. Um, when you look to the eventual time of your own succession, were there things that you learned from that experience that will help inform your own succession planning? Yes, which is that, first of all, Matt and Sal acted extremely well. Not easy. And I also had to work very closely with him in saying that, you know, you've got to be careful that you understand that you've got to be, when I say you've got to be willing to lose, you also be willing to give up. So I am, uh, um, I believe very strongly that uh, we've got to be willing to give the opportunity to others to take on. Now, I have created a very decentralized management at Ethan Allen. It's an entrepreneurial model. For instance, we write our retail is operated by 40 different entrepreneurial managers similar to our independent dealers. So I took that as an example. Like, for instance, we have a, uh, an independent dealer in New Jersey who has been around for 50 years, third generation. They run uh, four stores. We have one in, uh, in Texas. So that, and then we have others who got one store or two stores. So we, I said, instead of creating a one big national chain, we're going to create entrepreneurs. They certainly have to be, <laughs> they have to be entrepreneurial but they've got to be disciplined. So our model at Ethan Allen is entrepreneurial and disciplined. And uh, like today, if somebody leaves at Ethan Allen and people once in a while leave, it's in within one day or two days, we have filled their job. 95% from within. So similarly, I think my responsibility is to see that if I'm not there, that there's an opportunity to fill that job from within. Not easy, but you know that is that's my that's one of my biggest uh, responsibilities always but it ha- but it is you know you take the best you have and pr- promote them that speaks to a, a culture of education and training throughout all of the ranks how do you manage that how do you make sure that you have people prepared at all those levels and that you're training your managers to essentially train their replacements well i tell you this that um 30 30 years back, I, I said, we got to operate with certain principles, common sense principles. So I wrote down 10 leadership principles. And uh, they are you know, on our website, in my book too, but like one of the first one is that the leaders have to be accessible. Second, they've got to work hard. Speed is critical. That uh, prioritization is uh, diff- differentiating from big issues and small issues. We got to embrace change. And the last one is that justice. So this leadership principles have guided us. Now, in terms of uh, creating a disciplined environment, for instance, uh, every week, every week, there are 60 of our leaders, at least 60 or maybe more, write a report and they send me a copy if they are not directly reporting to me. Everybody does, but you know, 60 people don't report to me. They all have to write on five subjects every week. The first one is talent. What have they done to acquire, retain, train talent every week? Second is, what have they done in marketing? Third, what have they done in service? Now, if you are running a sawmill like we do in Vermont or an upholstery plant in North Carolina, their concept of service is different than a retail store or our logistics, but everyone talks about service. Then the next one is technology. Technology is today tremendously important at every level. Whether we are in, you know, today we have six manufacturing plants in North America doing more volume than 30 plants did 30 years back. Technology is tremendously important. And then finally, the last one is social responsibility, how we're conducting our business. 
So this has got to be part of a disciplined approach. Every week they have to write a report, and you'll be interested that you would think that uh, they would not have much to say. I read it, and then my job is, which is one of my leadership principles is, that, and something I was taught long time back, some wise person said, find something good and praise it. And I, that I try to apply as much as humanly possible, even with children. If you criticize anybody, they, they shut up. But if you first praise them and then tell them things they have to do, they listen. They're ready to listen. So I praise all these, almost the 60 folks, about 15, 20, 15 or so, or 18 of them are reporting to me. The rest, I basically praise some of the things they have done. If there's an issues, the person that they report to has got to handle it. But human nature is that sometimes we just forget it and we criticize people, and that is dismotivating and is not, not productive. Praising people and then telling them issues to do, people listen. So this is a culture that has to be done. It's not something that, and that has to go through. Like, for instance, talent. They have to talk about what they have done to acquiring talent, managing talent, talent and motivating them, teaching them. This, is, this has become part of the Ethan Allen culture. And that's why I believe that, uh, you know, we have the kind of a talent that we have and the motivation that we have. You, you talk several times about speed. You, that's one of your principles. And I noted in the book that you have m mentioned that in today's environment, speed actually is an attribute of quality. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, this is speed. Also, I say that, uh, you know, like the U.S. Marines, they say if you are 70% ready, go ahead. Don't go when you're 50 or when you think you're 50% ready or 40% ready. You, in, and if you wait for 80 or 90%, you will not, chances are you won't do it. You'll wait too long. So it's a, it's a judgment that has to be utilized. And certainly I have to make the decisions in many important areas. Are we ready? Are we about 70% ready? I ask my team members. And keep in mind, we have a very diverse group of people. You know, we have an operations in manufacturing. We've got in, uh, in Vermont, sawmills, manufacturers, you know, case goods plants. Uh, in North Carolina, we have a poultry plants. In Mexico, I went to settle Mexico, we have a thousand people working there, in Honduras also. So this question of uh, leadership is critical in terms of speed, and, and it goes at every level, which also means decision-making. Uh, I am very deeply involved, hands-on, so that I help people with making decisions so they, they can come to me, and we discuss it, and we either say yes or no, don't have all kinds of meetings. Most folks end up spending a lot of time waiting for decision-making in most enterprises. So speed becomes critical, and that becomes part of your culture. Hmm. I'd like to look at, um, for a second, the transition that Ethan Allen has made from the time that you were there in terms of the types of product that you've carried. Um, when you first started there, they carried uh, American colonial style furniture. Over the years, you've had to greatly diversify the the product portfolio and and to update the different styles. Um, you mention in your book two challenges in the retail environment: globalization being one, commoditization being the other. And one of the ways you described commoditization is the the kind of um, the availability of almost everything in all of these different venues. As Ethan Allen has diversified its product assortment to be relevant across a broader uh, platform, how have you continued to make it differentiated and, and make Ethan Allen unique while still being able to broaden that portfolio to, to reach a broader segment of customers than those who originally were looking for you know, early American colonial styles? Yes, you know, I mean, in the uh, in the early 90s, in, in, I, in 1989, I, took, I was able to take the company private in a management buyout from Interco. Uh, we 
had 90% debt, and half of that debt was up over 18% interest. The other, other one also was not cheap, it was 13%. So we were burdened. It was somewhat foolish. I was younger and foolish, and we took all that debt to buy the company, and now we had to really make tremendous changes. We had to make changes, but now to survive and to come out of it with all that debt, we had to make changes. And one of the first one was that early American colonial was no longer the predominant style, and we had that. The first thing we did was change almost 50, 60% of our offerings that had been there for decades in a year or two years. And then I borrowed more money to run national television to get that message across. It started working. Then we had to go and I had to raise money to go and public again so we could pay some of the debt. And in 1993, uh, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange and uh, raised some money. But the changes that we made in terms of our products and then the national advertising was just fortunately the right thing to do. And our business increased, our sales increased. And in the next 15 or 18 years, we generated over $2.5 billion of free cash. We bought 40% of our company back. We gave close to $700 million in dividends. Uh, we invested also close to eight, $900 million in, uh, in capital expenditures, dividends, uh, and also, as I said, bought our company's shares back. And we did extremely well. And of course, the change of the product was critical in terms of making sure we are relevant. Now, keeping that in mind, the philosophy that we have used in terms of our offerings is to be classic, but with a modern perspective. So we are still focusing on the classic product lines, but as times are changing, the modern perspective also reflects the modern times. Uh, so the next thing we said was we will maintain a consistent level of quality. We will not change our product lines to bring in lower quality so we can get more sales because then we would impact our brand equity. Now, that was a tough decision to make. We could have expanded more, gone into all, to selling products to all different customers, but I felt that we had to maintain the integrity of our programs because we were in the business of providing service. We were, we were developing a, one of the largest interior design company. So I felt that the integrity of our interior designers was important so that we would not be selling different levels of qualities. And we were all selling it only through the Ethan Allen system. So we have continuously looked at how do we define, how does America define classic but with a modern attitude. And you know, throughout history, people first dress themselves, then they dress their, then they change their automobiles or transportation, then they go to the home. This happened throughout centuries, nothing new. So as we look at how people are today dressing, look at they're more informal. You take a look at what the transportation is. It's changed from the 1970s and 80s. And the way people are living today is also less formal. So we have to, it's, it's, something, it's, a very, it's, a, it's something that you have to constantly be aware of, where do we stand? How do we reach the, our customer base? We cannot reach everybody. Like for instance, in the last four, three, four years, we have changed 70% of our designs. You know, major undertaking. All under the umbrella, what I say is classic with a modern perspective. And we'll continue to do that. How have you had to evolve as the generations have changed? You talked in the book uh, about in the 90s having to reach a new generation of consumer. Today, we have an entirely new generation of consumer. I mean, my children, your children or grandchildren, um, they shop differently. They use the Internet more. Um, you've continued to, to stay current with that. I mean, you have uh, augmented reality on your site. You have 3D modeling on your site. Uh, I understand designers can chat with customers. How, how have you tried to stay relevant to the next generation of consumer? Yes, it's a good question because um, the people, the way people are uh, 
decorating, the people, the way that they are buying, the way they're inter interacting is different. Now, however, people's interest in good design remains there, even though the format of the design might change. So this classic with a modern perspective gives an opportunity of having designs that are more relevant today. And it is. It's a lot of people's attitudes are changing in terms of, especially when you talk to the millennials, the way they live, the way they buy. Uh, however, I believe that people do go through the phases. The phases, are, and I believe that people, and I'm not talking the millennials, they are also now becoming more discerning about quality and service. People, personal service is going, to, is, is going to be more important at a time when there is no personal service left or, or very little left. So we have uh, 1,500 interior designers, but we, have to, but we have to today give them the tools. Like you mentioned, augmented reality, 3D, chatting. But combining personal service and the ability for people to even see things is important. Now, people today, all of us, we don't want to go to retail if we do not, if you're not going to get good service. And if we get good service, then we're going to go to retail. So those retailers who basically have a store with the products and no good service, the chances are they're not going to be around. So we are working hard to make sure that our professionals, our interior designers provide a great service and be willing to chat online, work with the clients, certainly traffic is down across the board. So people who come in, you have to make sure that you provide them great service. And it's an evolving thing, uh, Bill, and uh, all these challenges are there. And our focus is to continue to be relevant as we move forward. Uh, a lot of retailers today are starting to emphasize their interior design services. That's something that you've been doing for years. As a matter of fact, if I remember in the book, you, when you looked for store managers, you elevated the designers to that role in many cases. And I think you mentioned 1,500 interior designers. Um, what's the difference? I mean, I know there's a difference, but what's the value difference in an interior designer serving a customer versus a retail sales associate? Well, the difference is that you get knowledgeable people because most people, whether it's a millennial or whatever generation, they think they know. Yet, they, they are able to understand the difference when they have a professional that, that meets with them. For instance, these 60 people that send their reports and all the ones on the retail, every design center manager that works for the retail division of, of 150 or so every week gives stories of how they have vowed a customer. It's called wow stories. Uh, we get about most likely 200 wow stories a week. It's part of the culture. How have we wowed people? And I see it again and again and again that even the younger folks, the millennials you're talking about, are surprised that they are getting this service because they believe first that you know they don't need it, they can do it themselves, and our mission is to let them know, not easy, but our service of interior design is, has got to be much, much higher than others in our industry to differentiate. Because otherwise, if you just have a salesperson who is somewhat of a knowledge of an interior design, that's not going to work. Today, you either have to be the best in whatever you do, or you're not going to be around. Very, very true. Um, I'd like to just we're kind of coming to the end here, but I'd like to uh, to talk a little bit on a personal side. You you give your wife a great deal of credit for your success, um, and you have a rather interesting story. Uh, at a time when cell phones did not exist and technology was not where it was today, um, you were married by telephone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you didn't expect was, that question, did you? <laughs> no, but you know it's. Uh... Uh, I'm, I'm asked that question from time to time about, uh, in fact, last week, Monday, I was speaking to about 3,000 
young professionals in Washington, mostly in the field of technology and uh, um, and finance and banking, all very you know very very intelligent folks. So I had a fireside chat, somewhat like you and I are having, and so this lady asked me this question. So really, I understand that uh, you've been married for 50 years. How did that happen? And so I gave the story that uh, I was here in the States. I'd come as a, somewhat of a political refugee, and I didn't have all the papers at that time to go back. And, uh, and But before that, when I was 15 years old, I said this to these folks in Washington. Uh, they're mostly women, and they loved it. I said I was in my home, and a lot of our families had come and friends had come. And in the hallway, I was I all of a sudden bumped into this 14-year-old girl, and I was 15. So I looked into her eyes and said, who are you? She said, I'm Farida. Well, something happened. And, uh, well, then after a few years, I came here to the States, and now I'm 23 or so. And I said, if I don't uh, marry her, she's going to marry somebody else. And I couldn't go back. So I contacted my father to talk to him. His father and he talked to Farida. She said yes, and then I couldn't go back, so we got married over the telephone, and then she came here. That's uh, that's quite a lovely story. Yep, and you know it's been a, it's been a great great adventure together. Very 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 lovely. Well, I, I'd like to thank you for for your time today. I really appreciate given all the other interviews that you're doing with regard to the book, and thank you for sending along a copy of the book. It was a great read. Well, Bill, I must tell you this, you know, I have a special feeling for furniture today. You know, I've sort of grown up because I think in the last 30 years, I've had so many, many interactions with your with your paper so that uh, it really is special for me. Well, thank you. It's special for us as well. Uh, All right. Thanks very much, Bill. Great Take success. Care. Thank you. Thank you.